listening to the podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Refugee Crisis, Perceptions, Realities, Solutions, with speakers Benjamin Ward, Natalie Bennett, Josephine Leibel, Dr. Tahir Zaman, Abdi Aziz Suleiman, Hiba Al-Hijazi, Mehandi Al-Khatib, and Karim Dennis. Brought to you by the SOAS Student Union, MENA, and Aluabite Islamic Societies. This event was recorded on the 27th November 2015. Good evening and welcome to SOAS. To SOAS students, it's good to see you. To externals, we welcome you to our humble abode. My name is Mehdi Baraka. I'm president of the SOAS Ahlul Bayt Islamic Society. I greet you all with the greeting of Islam. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Peace and blessings be upon you all. On behalf of the SOAS ABSOC, the Students' Union, and the SOAS MENA Society, I welcome you to this event surrounding the refugee crisis, which is dedicated to raising awareness and seeking to find a solution to the crisis. We also aim for this event to become a rallying call for all students to unite and join forces so that we can find a solution and help the world. The world has turned a blind eye to what has happening, and this is why we have taken it upon ourselves in order to find a solution. As you can see from the poster, there are many societies supporting this event. And it is this message that we aim to send, this message that we want to reach to the refugees, that every single society at SOAS is united in finding a solution. It is this message that we want to reach to students, that regardless of your faith, regardless of your beliefs, regardless of your race and ethnicity, this crisis is a humanitarian crisis and nothing is stopping you from joining us and helping. I'd like to mention all the societies by name that have supported this. It's not easy organizing an event like this, and I'd like to thank you all for, for turning up. But I'd like to mention them all by name, but if I did, we'll be here till tomorrow morning. So I'd leave that to, to Ali. Okay. But from my heart, I'd like to thank every single society, every single delegate who joined our meetings and has for months been planning and planning and has left their studies in order to, to make this event happen and make this a reality. We're reading a lot in the news about what charities are going, what students are going, but it's about time that we unite as a collective and send the strongest message possible to the refugees. For that, I, for that I'd also like to announce that we're shooting a video where you can record a message to the refugees, which we are aiming to go and play to them in December. So please do get involved and record any message you have. Without further ado, if you give me a mic, I won't stop talking. I'd like to hand it over to our chair for the evening, Mr. Ali Habib, who will be introducing each speaker and taking your questions during the Q&A. Thank you very much. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, we also have an announcement from STAR, the Students Against uh, Action for Refugees. So I'd just like if you could listen to them for a short minute. Sorry to interrupt uh, that lovely speech. Um, we are now... Um, so as solidarity with refugees and displaced people. Um, we are running um, Education Beyond Borders, which is a campaign to rally SOAS. And I'm sorry for all of you that have heard me say this bill a, a million times before. Basically asking SOAS to provide access to education for asylum seekers within the university. So you can be in the asylum system for a really, really long time and don't have any access to higher education or to employment. And we want to welcome asylum seekers and people within the asylum system into our university with open arms. We do have a petition. We will be outside at the end of the event. So please do come and sign our petition and get in support behind the campaign as a way to, within our university, support uh, asylum seekers. That's all. Thank you so much.
I'd just like to reiterate what they said. Please do check out the petition outside and also there'll be a photo exhibition depicting the plight that the refugees have fa are facing from Baghdad all the way to Calais. So after the event, don't rush to your home straight away. There'll be a photo exhibition to check out and also some refreshments. For now, over to you. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. I'm not going to waste more of your time, so I'm going to introduce the first speaker. Our first speaker is Hiba Al-Hijazi, who helped found and set up the grassroots charity organization Move for Humanity, which aims to help address the refugee humanitarian crisis occurring in Europe. She is currently working as a creative coordinator and researcher at Al-Arabi's TV headquarters in London, and she completed both her BA and Master's at SOAS University, graduating with a Master's in Middle Eastern politics. She also has spent much time in the region, working and interning for various charities, think tanks and organizations, where she tackled issues such as huma hu human rights, intercultural dialogue, and the rise and spread of Islamophobia. So without further ado, I'd like to call on Hibel Hijazi. Hello? Okay. Can everyone hear me? Okay. First of all, I'd like to thank SOAS for inviting me to speak at this event. I'm going to start off with basically talking about what drove me and my friends to start up this organization. First thing, it was something that was personal to me. As you can tell from my name, I'm not originally from the UK. My parents made a choice 25 years ago to come to the UK to seek out a better life for themselves and for their families. Now, the timing and circumstances may be very different, but they share one common goal with the refugees and migrants who are now currently going through Europe, and that's the idea of securing a better life and future for your kids and your families and also for yourselves. Now, my parents were given this chance, luckily enough, in the UK, but there are many refugees and migrants who are in need of this, who are being denied this, even though they're in more dire need of it and the circumstances that they face are ones of life and death. Now, the second point that I'd like to bring your attention to is also the absurdity of the situation. If you were to go back into the UK's history, a mere 70 years ago, you'd find that Europe was in the middle of a world war, and there were many refugees fleeing Europe's shore to find safety elsewhere. And there were many families who were basically forced to put their kids on trains, and only relying on the generosity and the kindness of strangers on the other end of the tracks to secure their kids' future, and to make sure that they were okay. Now. This spirit shouldn't be forgotten in this time, and I think it's really saddening to see that our governments have forgotten this kind of humanitarian spirit that was part of the UK and Europe's formation. And this is another thing that I think drove us and many volunteers we found, especially British volunteers abroad in Europe, was the idea that the UK government's inaction really drove them to want to do something. They saw their governments basically tell these people and these refugees and migrants that we see you, but we don't care about you and you're not our problem. Now, when you're faced with that, the first thing you want to do is prove them wrong. Their inaction shouldn't reflect our truth, and that's why we wanted to go out there and help and see what we could do as individuals. And the ironic thing is that many people who don't want to help refugees or who turn a blind eye towards them, if you were to take a look at their simple DNA or even their genealogy, if it wasn't for one of their ancestors, taking a risk, at some point in time, they wouldn't have been here today. And so, what I want to say is that refugees shouldn't be punished for having this all-too-human trait of wanting to survive and wanting to secure a better future for themselves and their families. Now, I'm going to move on to what we learned while out on these trips. We visited, in the space of two months from when we set up, six different refugee camps. We went to one in Calais, two in Dunkirk, three in Vienna, and also, collectively, one in Lesbos. Now, I'm not going to speak too much about the 
Calais camp, because I know Kareem's been there recently, and he's got a more updated situation on it. But what, what I can say is that when we were there, the weather was good, and the conditions were already very harsh. So imagine now when the temperatures have dropped and it's freezing and it's raining, like what kind of situation these refugees and migrants now find themselves in. Another thing that basically we learned while going out on these different trips during these two months is that every camp is different and that the needs of one can't be assumed to be the same in another refugee camp. A good example of this would be the two refugee camps we visited in Dunkirk. They're a mere 15 minutes apart from each other, but what we found was that one, well, more people were aware of it, so there was more assistance there, while another one was completely secluded. So not many people knew about it, and there were 250 refugees who were basically sat there, deserted, no food, no assistance, no nothing. So when we got there, we decided to, instead of hand out one food parcel per refugee, we decided to hand out two, because we knew that in the coming months and the coming weeks, they'd need it more. And another thing I want to mention is that the situation is very fluid, and it changes weekly, if not daily. The Paris attacks especially come to show this, because we had a trip planned to Slovenia, and we had to basically redirect our efforts to Vienna. The reason being is that many of these border camps, especially in Slovenia, have a high military presence. And during the Paris attacks, there was obviously more awareness about refugees, and there was more kind of attention put towards them. So security was high and tensions were very high. So reaching these Slovenian camps, especially on the border regions, were much more difficult. So instead we went to Vienna, where there was easier access. And the one thing we found, even arriving in Vienna, was the situation was completely also different from what we'd seen in France. In Austria, it was a bit different. In Vienna, the three camps we visited, the Austrian government had basically given charity organization their buildings to house refugees in. But the reason why I call these camps and not centers is because it literally was a camp, but outdoors, basically indoors, sorry, and not outdoors. There was no beds, no maintenance, no mattresses, no rooms, no facilities for these refugees. They were using tents, makeshift beds, whatever they could do to basically secure themselves in this location. And it was very overpopulated. Sorry, I've only got five minutes, so I've got to skip quite a few points. And the one thing I want to make is the fact that when, what they really need, the only thing that I can say is universally needed in all these locations is volunteers. They ask people to come down because they need someone to help with the distribution and day-to-day -day activities of the camps. And another thing that's really vital is they need people who can speak languages because these refugees are coming from all corners of the world. There are people from Gambia, Eritrea, Iraq, Afghanistan, Palestine. Name it, there's people there. And they all speak different languages and different dialects. So they need people to help them communicate with <laughs> Okay, that was not me. <laughs> they need people basically to help communicate with these refugees so they can find out what they need and they can better distribute their aid. And there's just one thing I want to say before I end, and that's, it could be really Soasi, and I know loads of you guys are from Soas, but the point is, going to these refugee camps, we learned this thing as well, which is that the different definition between refugee and migrant might be clear-cut, but in reality, it's really complex. You can't look at the people trying to reach our shores or fleeing through Europe as simply victims because you take away their agency. And you hear loads of talk about refugees and migrants wanting to come to our shores to drain, basically, the NHS or take away our benefits. But the real threat, really, if you look at, for example, the UK, is the demographics. You've got an aging population and not many people to help sustain that. So in essence, they're not a threat, but they can be a big help to our society. They're here not to burden us, but to benefit us. And so we should take that into consideration when viewing them. And another thing I want to basically say is that we can't really underestimate the strength and perseverance of these people. The journeys they've taken aren't easy. And I can say for sure, I wouldn't be able to do anything that they've done. So we can't underestimate their sheer willpower. 
And just a story that I remember is that when we were in one of the refugee camps basically in Calais, we had to basically dig through a mound to help build a road. And while we're doing this, halfway through our work, we see three 13, four, 10 to 14 year old kids come up to us and they see us shoveling. One of them takes a shovel away from my hands and literally gestures for me to sit down. He's got this, he's got it sorted. I shouldn't worry about it. And if you think this guy's just good with a shovel, we come next day into the camp and we see the same 14-year-old kid named Ahmed, by the way, and he's translating. He's helping volunteers on the ground speak to refugees and migrants in the camp. And now he's only 14, and the work that he's done within two days is probably more than I've done the whole year when I was 14. So, like, as in we can't really underestimate the kind of potential that they can bring to our country. And that's what you've got to remember, because when you've got people like David Cameron speaking about a swarm of refugees, not only is he taking away from their individuality, but he's also taking away from the unique benefit that they can give our society. So in, you need to remember that every single time we've been in these camps, the refugees and migrants who live in these camps have been vital aspects to the success of our operation. They help with the distribution, they help with communication, they basically do everything we do, and they make sure that the job gets done. So just to recap, for everyone who's looking to get involved, the most important thing is please do your research and contact organizations on the ground because they'll be able to tell you what they need and where they need it. And if you're interested, you can also speak to us if you want, if you've got any questions or anything, you can direct it to us or also to two of my friends who are from the organization, Hannah and Kodu. They'll be really happy I pointed them out. They specifically told me not to. But yeah, you can come to them afterwards or even me and ask me any questions. And another thing is just you've got to remember that there's, there's basically, there's small tasks that anyone can do and anyone can get involved. Even the most basic tasks make a big difference in the long run, whether it's sorting clothes or acting as a drop-off point for aid. So don't hesitate to get involved and do something. Thank you for hearing me speak. Uh, thank you so much, Hiba. Just before I move on to the next speaker, um, we have a hashtag, so if you want to tweet about this event, the hashtag is um, SOAS Refugees. So if you want to know how to spell it, S-O-A-S-R-E-F-U-G-E-E-S. Again, hashtag SOAS Refugees, so yeah, do comment on it. Now, our next speaker is Dr. Tahir Zaman, who is a visiting researcher fellow at the Center for Research on Migration, Refugees, and Belonging at the University of East London and a senior teaching fellow at SOAS. His research is primarily focused on the social and cultural lives of displaced people in the Middle East, with particular reference to Iraq and Syria, transnationalism, diaspora contributions to conflict transformation and peace building, sociology of religion, and faith-based humanitarianism. So, yep. Uh, thank you for a warm welcome. Um, so today's uh, panel is Refugee Crisis, Perceptions, Reality and Solutions. And I just want to interrogate some of those terms like what crisis, uh, whose perceptions, what reality and whose solutions. So I'll start with, uh, you know, a, a kind of could, characteristic could you, story. Hello? Could you speak up a bit so everyone can hear? It's all right, I'm a mumbler. Um, so, character, characteristic story here. Uh, so you have a story of, let's say, an Afghan refugee. Let's call her Fatima. From uh, Jalazai camp uh, near Peshawar. Arrived in uh, Pakistan, say, in the mid-1990s. Um, she married her 
second cousin, who's from a village near Jalzai, uh, another Pashtun, has a child. Let's call him Jamshir. They moved to Islamabad after a while and live in the so-called Kachi uh, Abadi, which is like the informal settlements. Nice working class community, develops over time. 10, 15 years down the line, Jamshir is growing up. He's a smart kid. They work hard, this family, but Islamabad is becoming, uh, the land and property of Islamabad is becoming much sought after. The local de development authority reneges on previous promises to recognize the settlement and wants to clear the land for the building of other elite residences. Now, I, I think it was late, this time last year uh, in, in Peshawar, there was some terror attacks targeting a school. That sets the context and provides an excuse to clear out this informal settlement to make way for these elite residences. Homes are demolished, including Fatima's and uh, Janshir's, and the, the whole community, 20,000 people are evicted. Now the only sort of solution to this predicament that this family find themselves in is mobility. So mobility becomes a strategy for the family to survive. And John Sherd is, is a young man now, uh, and he, he's been charged with embarking on a journey across Iran, Turkey, and into Europe in order to provide for his family. Now, how do we think about people like John Sherd? Is he an economic migrant? Is he a development-induced migrant? Is he a refugee? So when we talk about uh, a refugee crisis, we need to ask ourselves, what does it show and what does it hide? Are there categories who are perhaps more privileged than others? So-called deserving and undeserving categories. How do we get to decide who actually gets to cross that border? And these, these are questions, these are very pertinent questions at the moment. So at the moment, some, some European governments are saying, okay, if you're Syrian, if you're Iraqi, if you're Afghan even, uh, it's okay. But Janshir, he's, he's Pakistani, right? Where does he fit into this? So there's categories of migrants who uh, become more visible than others. And these categories that we, I just spoke about, economic migrant, refugee, asylum seeker, these categories are not something which is like, you know, natural or anything. These categories come from policy makers, academics. We talk to each other, there's an echo chamber. We reinforce what the other says. And the people who are charged with managing the state and the economy of countries like, in, say, the United Kingdom, David Cameron, for example, they're not doing a very good job of managing the state and the economy. And with a little sleight of hand, it becomes very easy for them to uh, focus our attention on the body of migrants and the people who are crossing borders. And all of this points to uh, the reproduction of deeply anchored 
sedentarist ideas. Now, what do I mean by sedentarist ideas? I mean ideas which are a kind of rooted in believing that people belong to particular territories. You're French, you belong in France. You're Pakistani, you belong in Pakistan. You're Afghan, you belong in Afghanistan. And this kind of sedentarist metaphysics, which anthropologists refer to as sedentarist metaphysics, privileges the nation state. And it's within this framework of the nation state it's, um, and the international relations that you have, of which the UNHCR is, is a part of. And the UNHCR develops certain solutions to refugee problems. So the solutions they develop are the so-called durable solutions. You either return the person to their country of origin, you integrate them locally, or you resettle them in a third country. All three of those solutions are located in a particular nation state. And the point that I really want to get to is we're not going to find solutions based on these sedentarist ideas. And there's, there's, a, there's something that we need to remember about the terms that we use, terms like refugee, the way we understand who grants asylum. All of this comes from a particular history. Okay? And the history that it comes from can be traced back to European responses to displacement crisis. We can go back to the late 17th century and the Huguenots. And it's Charles II, the King of England, who says, I grant thee an asylum in, in England. Okay, so it's the state which is granting asylum. These are ideas that have stayed with us. The idea that the refugee is someone who's fleeing persecution based on particular grounds of uh, religious persecution or based on a political belief and so on. These ideas again have traveled over time through a particular European experience. And what we're seeing today is a global crisis. So Europe and its history is not the world and its history. There are other traditions of refuge, protection and assistance which we can call them. Traditions which have been perhaps invisibilized. And I think it's, it's quite fitting that we're at SOAS, so I'll quote a little bit of Franz Fanon to you. I'm sure you've heard it all before. But Fanon says, let us reconsider the question of cerebral reality and the cerebral mass of all humanity, whose connections must be increased, whose channels must be diversified, and whose messages must be rehumanized. For Fanon, the answer is not to imitate European history. For Fanon, it's to return to more local understandings. So there are understandings of, uh, as I said, refuge, protection, and assistance. You can find these perhaps in Islamic traditions. You can find it in other religious traditions. You can find it in, in the arts as well. There's alternative ways which we can think about refuge, protection, and assistance. And what I'm putting to you is that if we stick to these ideas which privilege the nation state, which privilege 
the securitization, which allowed the securitization of borders, which allow us to think this person here is deserving, and people like John Sher perhaps are undeserving. Based on what? What? Where do these categories come from? We need to rethink our ideas around uh, where these categories come from and how we uh, how we challenge them. In a sense. There's a game being played here, and the game is rigged. It's rigged so the house always wins. And in this sort of context, the state, nation state, with its agendas of exclusion, will always win. And it's very difficult to get beyond uh, these sort of crises if we don't consider, and this is the space for us to think, this is the space for us to kind of reimagine and be brave and try to consider and not to say, oh, but the world is hard. The world is the way it is. If that's the case, we would never have had the Reformation. There wouldn't have been an enlightenment. There wouldn't have been any sort of challenge to the status quo. And that's what's required right now. So I'll stop there. Thank you so much for that. Um, okay. I'll let you settle down for 30 seconds. Okay. So our next speaker. Hi. So our next speaker is uh, Miss Natalie Bennett, who is the leader of the Green Party of England and Wales. She was born in Sydney, Australia, and she has lived in London since 1999. Uh, she started her career as a journalist and worked for The Telegraph, The Independent, The Times, and most recently as the editor for Guardian Weekly. Nat uh, Natalie obtained a degree in agricultural science from the University of Sydney, making her the only political leader in the country with a scientific background. She has spent two years in Bangkok working with the National Commission on Women's Affairs on this report to the UN Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. She has also worked as a consultant with the International Labour Organization on Child Labour Issues and World Health Organization on Women's Health. Just before she comes up, she will only be here until 7.30, so for those just... Yeah, just a heads up. But yeah. Thank you very much. And it's lovely to be in my uh, second university setting uh, talking about refugees in two days. Yesterday I was at the University of Nottingham and had a crowd about this size too. But since it's Friday night, you get more brownie points. Um, as the chair outlined, um, I share the status of many people in Britain, about 12% of the British population. I am a migrant. And yet, often when I say to people and who say to me the things about their concern about immigration, I say I'm a migrant, they say, perhaps they're a bit too polite to be this blunt, but what they really mean is, oh, but I don't mean people like you. I'm a privileged migrant. Um, but what I would say is, you know, if we're gonna think about which migrants we should be worrying about, I think it's the merchant bankers, personally. I think they're the biggest threat to our security. But I wanted to sort of cross the three areas that we're talking about today, starting with the perceptions. And one of the things that I find if I stand on a doorstep, knock on a door and people say, it asks people, what are you concerned about? You do get a lot of responses, people saying immigration. But then when I asked 
a good percentage of those people, a significant majority of those people, what do you mean by that? They'll usually say low wages, crowded schools and hospitals, or my kids can't get a council house or they can't afford to rent a house. And I say to them, but none of those things are caused by an influx of refugees caused by immigration. They're caused by failures of government policy. And I can tell from the reaction I get from that. And lots of people go, oh yeah, and then we start to talk about why there's low wages and the minimum wage not being a living wage, and George Osborne's faux living wage is not a real living wage. All of those things. A great many people, they start to, their perceptions start to shift. And that's something that's really important that we need to challenge and talk about all the time. But I think to bring the focus perhaps more onto the reality of refugees, I saw a figure this morning which I thought was really telling, and this whole the crisis, as the word is up here today, the around about 600,000 refugees coming in to uh, Europe in the past year, that's increased Europe's population by 0.32%. Perhaps if you look at it that way, it's not that much of a crisis in terms of population impact. An interesting figure, and although I might challenge some of the terms of the debate, um, an interesting figure that suggests that next year, Germany, which of course has welcomed a great many refugees, they're expecting that 12% of the growth in the German economy next year will come from those refugees. So next time someone says you, oh, we just can't afford it, that's one figure perhaps to present back to them. And then I think perhaps the most telling figure of it all when we think about the refugees and the situation where there is a genuine crisis. A couple of days ago I tweeted uh, a pie graph. Um, and don't worry if you can't find it, it's not very hard to recreate because this pie graph was a very simple pie graph. It showed the percentage of refugees from Syria, the refugees that have actually reached Europe. It was 5%. 95% of the Syrian refugees are in those neighbouring countries, countries like Jordan, where one in three people is a refugee. So those are some of the realities. And some of the other actual reality that I've seen is that I joined Jenny Jones, our member of the House of Lords, in visiting the Calais refugee camp known as the Jungle a month or so back. And that was before it got cold, before winter. And what I felt then was, gosh, what's it going to be like when it gets cold? And of course it has got cold. And I think of all of those people in those summer weight tents and I was actually talking to a group also of school children yesterday, sort of 15 and 16 year olds, and trying to give them a sense of what is the jungle like without being utterly terrifying. And I kind of said to them, it's like Glastonbury, but you don't get to go home and have a hot shower and a long sleep after three days. And that's what it's like. It's a place with no escape. And you know, I think it's a, it's a deeply disturbing experience to go and spend a day in the jungle and talking to people and there's so many great people there doing volunteer work, helping out. Um, and one of the things that several refugees said to me is, we think British people are so wonderful because you're all here and helping us. And I kind of had to say, I'm sorry, I don't think that's exactly all British people. They're just the ones you've met. Um, but, you know, it's a hideous situation and it's an absolute disgrace to the whole of Europe that some 6,000 plus people are living in those conditions. 
in the centre of Europe. So what should we do? Solutions. And that perhaps is my job as a politician is to try and offer those. And I want to start with Calais because I think in some ways that's the political hard case. It's the toughest one. But those people, many people in Calais have absolutely good reason to want to be in Britain. They want to come to Britain. The easy cases are the ones where people have, and it's astonishing that they're stuck there, people who have a husband or a wife in Britain with refugee status, but they're unable to join them. We don't have a system that's allowing that. So what we should be doing in terms of solutions is getting together the British government, the French government, setting up a fair, quick system for people to apply for refugee status in Britain. And I think a very good percentage of those people would have a good case to be in Britain. Then what should we do about the 600,000 or so refugees in Britain, in um, the EU? Well, I say that what we should be doing is Britain should not just be accepting our fair share of those refugees, but welcoming our fair share of those refugees. Now, what does that mean? And I don't think that's just a one-off. I think that means we should think about as Britain accepting, we should be accepting as Britain, our fair share of perhaps two million people has been the estimate of the number of people who are likely to seek refugee status in Britain in the next few years. Britain's 12% of the British population, of the UU population. I think we should be thinking about accepting something like 240,000 refugees. Now that sounds like quite a large number, but that means one refugee for every 177 Britons. To put it at a rough guess with this room, there'd probably be two new refugees in this room. And I think Britain could and should cope with that perfectly comfortably. But of course, we don't want to keep people having to cross the med, having to risk their lives, put their hand, lives in the hands of smugglers. So we need to make sure that people can apply from the neighbouring states, from Libya, from the countries they're fleeing, to be able to come to Britain, come to Europe in a fair, controlled mechanism. That's the kind of way we should be looking. And then, finally, and I've only got a couple of minutes, but very briefly, I want to get to the final point, which is really the solutions in the longer term, the solutions we should also be thinking about while we're dealing with this humanitarian crisis. And that is to say that we have to demand of our political leaders, our global readers, to say no person should have to be a refugee. That's where we want to get to. I know it sounds like a long way away at the moment, but we need to be thinking about that, planning that. And that, of course, brings up a context of a current situation that's very much in the news and David Cameron's big push for Britain to join the bombing of IS in, or ISIS in Syria. A couple of figures. The US has launched 8,000 strikes on 16,000 targets against IS, ISIS in 15 months. It has the same number of, est estimated as the same number of fighters that it had when those US airstrikes started. There'd been 15,000 foreign fighters gone to join IS. There are now 30,000. This is an utterly failed policy. And that's unsurprising when we think about the fact that after Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, throwing around high explosive does not solve anything. Which is not to say that we shouldn't be doing nothing. But what we should be focusing on is strong diplomatic efforts 
focusing on the whole region, the global players and the regional players who are fueling this conflict, putting money and weapons into the conflict, using diplomatic, all of our diplomatic means that we possibly can. That's what we should be doing. And when we think about what we should be doing in the world, this government has got credit, which to some degree it deserves, for keeping aid at 0.7% of GDP. But we say we should go further. We need to build a world free from hunger, disease, from want. That will make us all more secure. We need to focus on supporting human rights and democracy, which means not subsidising arms sales to Saudi Arabia, probably the world's second worst. You can argue about this, but I think it's the second worst human rights abuse, uh, abusing regime in the world. North Korea is arguably worse. You can debate that one. That, that might be an interesting subject for an essay. Um, but this brings me to a, to a final point, and I'm aware I've only got one minute. But I want to come back to the British context and focus on the fact that we have a government that is headed in Britain in entirely the wrong direction and in foreign policy in entirely the wrong direction, whether it's Saudi arms sales, whether it's the, um, uh, its approach to wanting to bomb uh, in Syria and Iraq. This is not a government that has a mandate for what it's doing. This government only has the support of 24% of eligible voters. We have a failed electoral system, and we have a government that doesn't even have a secure majority in the House of Commons, let alone the House of Lords, which has suddenly turned into a champion of the poor and the young, which is really quite astonishing. But we're in a profoundly unstable political situation. So there's a lot, and tonight we'll be talking about a lot of practical things we can do for refugees, a lot of policies we should be fighting for, for refugees. But what we also need to be doing is saying, let's not just say we're going to have to put up with David Cameron in Britain until 2020. 2020 is too far away. Britain and the world can't take it. Let's push, fight, organise, be determined and build a different, better kind of Britain and a better world. Thank you. Thank you for that. Can I just ask, there are many people at the door. If, the, if you can find a space in between, I'm sure there are, there's an empty chair there, empty chair there. There's spaces in just, yeah, just for health and safety reasons, if you can just come in, if that's okay. I'm going to get banned from Saudi Arabia. Okay. Okay, can, can, because we need to move on to the next speaker. Yeah. Is it all good? We're going to give you 30 more seconds and then we're going to continue. There's space at the front right there. <laughs> It's not an interval, I don't know. Yeah. I thought, you know, let me be a gentleman and let people sit down. That was a bad mistake.
I'm yamming. I'm, I'm gonna be the. Hello. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna begin now. So, our next speaker. Can everyone hear me? Hi. Our next speaker is Abdulaziz Suleiman, who was born in Somalia and at the age of three came to the UK as a refugee. He grew up in the inner city area of Broomhall in Sheffield. Of Broomhall in Sheffield and went on to receive a degree in philosophy from the University of Sheffield. Whilst at the university, Abdulaziz was elected president of the Students' Union with a record turnout and record number of votes. He has also served on the National Executive Council on the National Union of Students and he, is currently, he currently works in the office of the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sheffield as a researcher in, the, in community outreach and engagement. In this role, he has advocated universities to do more for ref refugees and asylum seekers. So please give a warm welcome to Abdelaziz. Hello, everybody. So why is it so important to have an event like this at a time like this? Um, I think one of the reasons why it's so important is that for the first time in an incredibly long time, we saw something of a gap begin to develop in the edifice of xenophobia, closeted racism, and hidden prejudice that was actually being articulated by many people on the streets and much more overt <coughs> racisms and demonizations of the other being articulated in the media. We saw a tiny bit of a gap. And since Paris, you can already feel, in a way, the way in which fear is being allowed to replace empathy as the main interaction that the individual in this country is being asked to have with those who at this moment in time find themselves in positions of less fortune. So it's important that actually we have an event like this. It's important that we meet up. It's important that people stay behind and have conversations with each other and ask each other, what are we going to do to carry on making the case, making the argument that we don't want to live in a society that thinks that people's otherness is a cause for discrimination. Now, I was, uh, I, was, uh, I was born in Somalia. I was very young. My story is not incredibly interesting insofar as my mother did most of the struggling. We came to the United Kingdom in 1993, and we grew up in, uh, in Sheffield, in the north, in a place where... As new migrants, we were, you know, we were just trying to, to find out how the culture worked, how society was. And being victims of all the discrimination you can expect from individuals who find themselves in that position. But I want to say something incredibly clearly. I lived on benefits most of my life. My mother did. And I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of that because I'm not so impressed by the military might of the United Kingdom and its capacity to pulverize places on the other side of the world. I'm not so impressed by boastings of jingoism and so on and so forth. I am much more impressed by a society capable of constructing a welfare state that accepts 
that people find themselves in positions of fortune and misfortune, and that society believes that misfortune should not be allowed to be exacerbated. And I, I find it interesting, actually, uh, in some of the responses that people have had to the refugee crisis where they've been attempting to tell us all that our empathy is misplaced and that we should, we should come back to thinking with common sense and rejecting the idea, you know, to getting us to think, well, wait a minute, what are all these people doing? What are their intentions? And so on and so forth. I find it very interesting because I can sort of forgive indifference. I can sort of forgive those who want to get on with their lives who just want to go to work, come back, you know, do what they can to, to, to do well by their family and their children and so on and so forth. I can sort of forgive that. But I cannot forgive those who from a position of fortune that they have done nothing to earn decide that they will use that pulpit and that position in order to lecture people against being empathetic towards those who are asking for nothing more than what they already have. Now, while I have some time, I just want to say a few more, slightly more practical things. I think that all of us, I don't know, I imagine there are people from lots of universities around London. I would encourage you to make demands of your universities. If your universities are going to claim and are going to take advantage of all the people who come from around the world, who develop them and make them the way that they are, then the university should be willing to contribute and help in the crises that happen around the world. And I think part of what that means is a demand that your universities offer scholarships to academics. A demand that your universities offer scholarships to asylum seekers in the UK and to, to refugees uh, uh, abroad. Demand that your universities help both financially and in other ways the groups on campus who are already campaigning to support refugees and asylum seekers. And also, universities are large places warm places. And we have a real problem with asylum seekers in the UK, rejected asylum seekers and other asylum seekers who find themselves in situations where they are living on next to nothing, where they have to go to libraries and other warm places. And you'll be quite surprised that, and I think actually being so, I don't think you'll be so surprised, but there are very few places in society that don't demand that you pay them to stay there, right? And you have asylum seekers who are desperately trying to find somewhere warm to be. Well, universities are incredibly warm. Student unions are incredibly warm. And the question, therefore, is to what degree are universities were showing and expressing empathy and sympathy for those getting away from places where they are finding themselves physically at threat? To what degree are universities committing space to allowing those people to be indoors rather than outdoors, especially in the cold? Um, I think what this crisis has done is it has allowed us to begin to more actively start asking questions about borders, about the way in which states are, are making it difficult for people to cross these borders, by the degree to which these borders in many cases are historic absurdities. But I also think we need to challenge something else. If you live, and if we live, in a world where wealth and opportunities are so absolutely concentrated in certain countries, where through centuries of colonialism and exploitation, 
Once again, the wealth and the opportunities are concentrated in certain countries. Why or why are those countries so surprised that people should want to partake in some of this? And actually, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be sold so easily the idea that there is an immovable distinction between those like my mother who are escaping civil war, escaping murder, escaping, and can tell you, and I've said this before, but can tell you all sorts of horrifying stories about being hungry for long periods of time, about people who are, who are struggling, you know, walking miles and miles and miles on foot in difficult situations, to be told that we should have empathy with them, but not empathy with those who have been driven by desperation and destitution to wish to partake of some of the opportunities and fortune that has been accumulated in countries that have almost always accumulated them unjustly. So I really want to end um, on that note. I want to end by encouraging you all to volunteer, to, 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 to not allow yourselves to be, to, be, to, be, to be convinced into not having the necessary, the, the necessary empathy. And I also really want to encourage the idea that people have those conversations with each other and ask each other, how do we make this world a semi-decent place in such a way that we don't end up we don't end up with people feeling like the only way that they can be safe is to have to risk their lives and the lives of their children by traveling hundreds and thousands of miles. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, we're going to have our next speaker. Uh, our next speaker is Kareem Dennis, a former musician and current student at SOAS. He has been part of the London to Calais legal team over the course of the recent crisis and has worked very closely with countless refugees on translating for them psychological examinations and legal meanings as part of their application for asylum. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so firstly, I want to say thank you very much to the organizers. And secondly, I want to... Um, come on from a point that was said about semantics and I want to go in a little bit further into that. Universities are great places um, for philosophizing, uh, for pontificating as well and these are both useful things but more useful than that is organizing and more useful than that is direct action and us doing things that have a direct effect on the reality and changing the reality for the better. That is the most important thing for us to focus on today. Um, thank you. So um, in, in, in that sense, I want to go into a little bit more of what London to Calais is. Um, it's an organization of activists um, who are focused on um, Calais and what is called, quote-unquote, the jungle. Now, to go on from the point that was made earlier, it doesn't take Franz Fanon or Stuart Hall to work out that a camp in France that is populated by brown and black people being called the jungle is racist. So I don't refer to it as the jungle, we refer to it as, as a camp, as a camp in Cali of human beings. And even words like refugees, immigrants, we don't need to use these words. There isn't one person in this room who's done anything in their life that makes them more deserving of a roof over their head and of a warm house than anybody else in the world. Not one of you, me included. And so for that reason, and so for that reason, we are not just focused on making the conditions that people are living in now, they're slightly more comfortable, less uncomfortable. We are trying to focus on ways to get them out of there. 
and to get people to Britain that we can get. So uh, my role, I'm a fourth year Arabic student and um, my role was as a translator in uh, legal meetings and in uh, psychological assessments for people uh, specifically, we were discussing earlier, there's something called the Dublin uh, Regulation in EU law. Now this uh, regulation stipulates that the first uh, country that a person arrives in within the EU, they have to claim asylum there. There was, however, an amendment in 2014 which said if you have uh, relatives, first-degree relatives, that is, um, within another EU country, then you are able to claim asylum in that country, from another country. Now, this is what we are doing um, as an organization uh, in uh, coordination with a law firm called Bat Murphy and a charity called Citizens UK. We are focusing on finding uh, human beings living in the camp who have uh, relatives uh, within Britain. Uh, first and foremost, we're focusing on minors because we understand that in the British court system they, they stand a far better chance. Um, daily, people are trying to get to Britain in whatever way they can, taking all types of risks. Um, and I wanted to speak a little bit about the, uh, the conditions of uh, the camp in Calais. There is all types of architectural violence around uh, this place. You have barbed wires, high fences with barbed wire, giving a, a, very, uh, a very difficult uh, thing to wake up to in the morning. You wake up to a fence which is far, far higher than you could ever climb. It has a deep, deep effect on your, on your psychological state. Um, it's also surrounded by chemical factories which uh, produce a smell which is really very sickening. Um, uh, not just that, TB and scurvy have uh, been spreading at a very uh, crazy rate in the camp. Uh, most people, the most that they're living off is one meal a day. You have the French police uh, suppressing people and there's rumours within the camp, I'm not sure about the ins and outs of what is happening, but that these French police, their wages are being paid by the British government. And people are saying if the British are spending this money on paying the wages of the French police to suppress us in our efforts to get to Britain, well, surely, surely they're wasting their money. Essentially, you have the French police setting dogs on them, you have them tear gassing them. We heard stories the other day of a demonstration of uh, women and children onto the motorway being tear gassed by the French police. Um, you know, and then I want to speak a little bit about the type of people that I've met there. Um, as a, uh, a student here, I spent the last year, academic year in Palestine. I met a very sweet guy there who's from Yarmouk in uh, Syria, uh, a camp uh, predominantly for Palestinians. He said, he said um, to us that his, uh, his first dream is to return to Palestine, but that is a dream that is unattainable. His second dream is to return to Syria, but that is a dream that is unattainable. His third dream is to go and be with his family in Britain, but it seems that is a dream that is unattainable. You know, this is really, really tragic. There's nothing that this human being has done in his life apart from be a victim of this modern state system, of this, uh, of this idea of the monopolization, firstly upon the use of violence, but monopolization upon the, the, the movement of human beings. Who gives anyone the right to say to another human being based on any piece of paper in the world, you can go here, you can't go there. No one has the right to say that to you. Why should we accept that? Um, I, met, I translated for, um, for a veterinarian. We, 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 we met uh, a surgeon. We met people of all types of different uh, 
professions and skills and people that within any society that they were part of would contribute positively. And that is a really important, uh, a really important idea that I want to get across to you. They would strengthen any society they were part of. And any society that has been at its zenith of achievement and of contribution to human progress and the human story, it has had a very different way of interacting with those foreign to it. With those foreign to it. If we can take a, take a look at the Abbasiyin, we look at the House of Wisdom, as they call it, by Harun al-Rashid, that was set up. This was concentrated on translating uh, uh, pieces, mostly Aristotle, Plato, characters like this from, um, from Greece, if that had not happened, Europe would never have known about Greek philosophy. The word philosophy would not have even entered the English language if it wasn't for these translations that took place during that time and then in the days of Andalus, the Moors bringing it into Europe. My point is this, when you have all of these uh, people within your society, these, are a, these people are a source of richness. They are not a source of weakness. They are people that can be used to strengthen the society, strengthen the human story, and strengthen the progress of human beings. I think that these recent tragic events um, really, as Will Self actually, who benefits from the privilege of saying things like this and not being isocized, not being daeshized, not being ostracized as other members of this society are when they say Will Self said that French society needs to ask itself serious questions about how it deals with and how it views brown and black people within it. He has the privilege of saying these things and not being ostracized and not being witch-hunted in a McCarthyite way that the media has done recently with certain figures. And I think this is an important uh, point to make. You have people like Katie Hopkins and David Cameron. Refer Katie Hopkins refers to these people as, uh, as uh, cockroaches. David Cameron refers to them as a swarm. The Daily Mail, who published equally uh, repugnant type of things in the late 30s when Jews were fleeing Nazi persecution. They published cartoons comparing these people to rats. But it is for us to say, no, these people are not rats. These people are not a swarm. These people are not cockroaches. They are our brothers and sisters in humanity. They are our mothers and fathers. They are our aunts and uncles. They are us and we are them and we will serve them. Thank you very much. Now, our next speaker is uh, Ms. Josephine Leibel, who leads Oxfam's UK policy and advocacy on humanitarian crisis and conflicts in Africa. She has particular focus on South Sudan, as well as the Democratic Republic of Congo, Somalia, and Sudan. She's previously worked as a senior policy officer at EPLO, a Brussels-based network of NGOs working on conflict prevention and peace building. Prior to joining EPLO, Josephine held positions at the European Coalition for Corporate Justice, the German Institute for Human Rights, and the UNRWA. Josephine holds a BA from University of Maastricht, Maastricht, exactly. Maastricht and an MA in Human Rights from the University of Essex. So please give a warm welcome to Ms. Thank Josephine. You. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak and for inviting me. Um, I was asked to speak specifically to the solutions um, 
today. So I will be focusing on this. But before sketching out possible solutions, I would like to have another look at this crisis we're discussing today. Um, yes, there is a global displacement crisis. This year, the UN has said that more people than ever since the Second World War have been displaced, a figure that is almost or close to 60 million people worldwide. The majority of those people are displaced within their own, within states' borders, so they're internally, internally displaced. There is, of course, a lot of people who have to flee and have to leave their own country and cross the border. We see that more than four million people had to flee Syria to escape the civil war. We see what's happening in Libya and to the south of Libya, which has resulted that ever more people are traveling um, and, or take that perilous journey through the Mediterranean Sea to reach Europe. Of course, this is a crisis facing the people who are on the move, whether you want to call them refugees or migrants. However, is this a crisis for Europe? Since the beginning of this year, around 800,000 people have arrived in Europe. And as Natalie already said, I come to, it is not even 0.2% of Europe's population. Um, by contrast, if you look at other countries, Lebanon currently hosts 1.2 million Syrian refugees um, and has a population of 4.5 million, which means that every one in four people in Lebanon is a Syrian refugee. Um, this is in a country where, whose GDP per capita is 9,000 euros. In comparison, the average GDP per capita in the EU is 27,000 euros. Again, this is not to suggest that there's not a crisis facing these people who are in dire need, but is this a crisis for Europe, really? Especially when we see that developing countries host 86% of the world's refugees. What we think is much more the case is that we see a political crisis of Europe to respond to what is happening at its borders. Why do we think it is important to make that difference? Because we see politicians and media using anti-migrant um, rhetoric to describe what's happening, dehumanizing language that doesn't basically make, make sense of the fact that everyone who is coming is a person with a name and a life story. They have been driven to extremes by the circumstances that they are faced with in their home countries and have risked everything. Um, so they are the ones in crisis. It's not Europe that is in crisis. Um, in terms of the way that um, I want to talk about solutions today, um, I want to say a quick word about what Oxfam's perception is on the crisis. We are working in the, almost all of the top ten source countries for refugees globally, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Sudan, etc., where we deliver humanitarian assistance for those affected by conflict, work to reduce inequality and poverty, and support civil society and citizens to claim their voice. We are also responding to some of the humanitarian needs we see in Greece, Serbia, and Italy, um, as well as working in contexts such as in Wales, where um, the Oxfam staff has worked with women refugee and asylum seekers and supporting them in finding job opportunities, um, friends and neighboring um, societies, and supporting their, um, basically welcoming them um, here in the UK. Based on the work that we're doing, I would like to offer three solutions to the crisis, if I can. Um, the first is to specifically identify what actually causes the humanitarian and human rights crisis we see 
in Europe at the moment and then act on that. Um, we find that the actual problem to a lot of the suffering we see is that there are no safe and legal routes for people to come to Europe. However, instead of identifying this as the main problem, which is a political problem, um, a lot of, government, a lot of um, politicians were very quick to declare war on smuggling or trafficking, or especially in the African context, suggest that there is an economic problem that more development assistance will fix. We have now, I think, arrived at what um, Jorgen Carling at Prio calls the vicious cycle of fortress Europe, where more deaths of people coming to Europe resides in an increased call for action against smugglers, which then leads to more anti-smuggling measures, which again causes smuggling to become much more dangerous and again leads to more deaths. If we look at concrete figures, they seem to confirm this theory. Um, there's a very interesting website called The Migrant Files, which if, I, if you haven't looked at, I would encourage you to look at. In the last 15 years, at least 31,000 people have died or have gone missing trying to reach Europe. This is a staggering figure. Over the same period, the EU has spent 11.3 billion euro on deportations, technical assistance to North Africa to increase border management, fences and walls, etc. So there's a whole system being built to keep people from Europe rather than ensuring that there are actually possibilities for people to come to Europe. What would examples of such safe and legal routes be for people? Um, increase in humanitarian visas. Brazil is, for instance, practicing this. So people who are, for instance, currently in Turkey can go to the Brazilian embassy and apply for a humanitarian visa to go to Brazil. Um, expedited family-based immigration procedures, community sponsorship arrangements, academic scholarships were already mentioned. Um, so all of this um, would enable people to actually find legal means to come to Europe, rather than being forced into illegal, using illegal routes. On this, a concrete action point, um, the British Refugee Council, if you're interested, is doing a, um, a campaign for the um, 1st of December vote on the Family Reunion Amendment, which is going to happen on the 1st of December in the House of Commons. So you can write to your MP um, arguing for an expansion of the family um, reunification legislation. We have also argued for um, increased responsibility sharing regarding resettlement of refugees. Um, we have calculated in the case of Syria, and I have some publications on that with me, um, we're calling for at least 10% of the population of refugees that are actually registered in neighboring countries where the majority of refugees are to be um, resettled or offered humanitarian assistance by Western governments. That would amount to a bit more than 400,000 people. We have looked at dip what different governments have offered and have calculated what would be a fair share for governments to offer in terms of resettlement. For the UK, we have calculated that they should resettle 20,000 people by the end of 2016. That would be their fair share of the resettlement. They, you will all know that the UK government has now pledged to um, resettle 20,000 by, by the end of 2020. So that's roughly 25% of what we consider would be the fair share for the UK government. Um, I'm running out of time. So the second solution is more needs to be done to protect refugees and provide them with the support they need to live a life in dignity. And again, I think I'm picking out um, Syria because 
the majority or the biggest group of people coming to Europe at this point in time, at the end of October, that was 53% are from Syria. The situation in Syria continues to deteriorate and Syrian refugees in neighboring countries will, for the foreseeable future, probably not be able to return. Um, at the same time, neighboring countries, Lebanon, um, Jordan, Turkey, etc., face diverse economic and social challenges. Um, and the refugees in these countries become increasingly vulnerable. There needs to be more support. We have done together, we have put together together with other agencies a little briefing note outlining what kind of support Western governments should provide to both host communities and refugees in these neighboring countries. But basically, there needs to be more financial support for the humanitarian response to the Syria crisis. All the different um, aid pods are 50% funded, meaning half the need is actually funded. Beyond short-term humanitarian funding, there needs to be more support for people in neighboring, refugees in neighboring countries to rebuild their lives, to be able to work, um, to be able to put their children to education, etc. The third and final solution is addressing root causes of displacement. And this is something that I really want to highlight because it's not only displacement doesn't only exist when people start coming to Europe. The majority of displacement is not towards Europe. The majority of places in other place, is in other parts of the world. Um, there needs to be more efforts to find political solutions to crisis and conflict. Syria is a prime example, but there are, other, there are plenty other examples. South Sudan, it has taken the UN Security Council 18 months of intense fighting that has displaced over 2 million people to start thinking about an arms embargo. Why does it take so long to get political action? The arms trade was already mentioned which um, we are very interested about due to our work in Yemen and the, um, in, well, the existing arms exports to Saudi Arabia. But there are other examples. Central African Republic. Um, last year, it was found that a significant proportion of small arms ammunition used in the civil war in Central African Republic um, is of Belgian, Czech, and UK origin. Um, there's a lot that needs to be done for Western governments to implement the arms trade treaty. Um, and, uh, and actually diligently do a risk assessment of human rights and international humanitarian law implications of the arms export. Um, finally, climate change. Um, already more than 80% of all humanitarian disasters are weather related. A recent Oxfam research has shown that um, with the warming seas we're expecting and the El Nino phenomenon to hit various different countries throughout the, throughout the world, Ethiopia is currently looking at a situation where eight million people um, are in need of humanitarian assistance. There's obviously the Paris deal coming up that again is an, is a, is an opportunity for Western governments to be actually um, committing to emission cuts and providing more support for the developing world to um, build more climate resilient societies. If the temperature um, surpasses the two degrees threshold, which is unfortunately likely, millions of more people will be displaced from their homes by rising seas and intolerable um, environments. So I think, again, in terms of thinking about this as a crisis, there is a need for us to be compassionate with the people who come to Europe and show action, but at the same time, there's a need to remind European leaders that they have a responsibility for displacement um, throughout the world and not only when it affects them. Thank you. Um, if we could just give a round of applause to Natalie as she has to leave, but thank you for coming.
One more announcement before our next speaker. Yeah, so we're going to have our next speaker. Just before he goes on, just a reminder, we do have a hashtag, so don't subtweet us. Actually, use the hashtag so we know that you're more engaged. But the next speaker is Mehdi Al-Katib, who's a SOAS graduate who studied politics and economics. And a few months ago, he was on a fact-finding mission for Islamic Unity Society Aid in Kos, Greece, translating and coordinating with other volunteers to house and clothe refugees on the island. So could you please give a round welcome to Mehdi Hello everyone, uh, I know it's been a long night so uh, I'd like it if you could uh, bear with us a bit. I'm going to be talking about my human experience, my personal experience in, in, in Greece and I'm going to start off with what I did, uh, my situation a bit and then talk about a couple of stories, there's too many to actually mention but I'll try and keep it short and hopefully after that talk about what I learnt and what possible solutions there are. So. Um, me and my friend Aziz, who's in the crowd today, decided and just picked up and said, listen, we need to go and help out with these refugees. We had no idea what we were doing. We simply booked flights and a hotel, and we just jumped in with it. We didn't really do any research. We arrived at the island having no idea what's going on. But the main thing is we just got in contact with Facebook um, pages and so on, and that's probably the best way to keep news. Um, the best news is up to date is on Facebook because a lot of the people on the ground, things are changing constantly. So just an interesting point. Me and my friend uh, were worried there might not be refugees there, there, there'd only be a bit of help available and so on. We thought worst comes to worst, you know, we'll work nine to five and in the evening we'll enjoy a bit of tourism and so on. Nothing could have been more further than the truth. We managed to end up having about two hours sleep a day um, eating maybe a banana and a bottle of water on one of the days, uh, maximum a meal a day. And it's not a case of boasting at all, but you really need to realize that when you're there, you'd even feel guilty. I, you'll genuinely feel guilty the fact you're enjoying a luxurious touristic meal. So <laughs> it was a big experience and a, and a huge change in my life personally. Many of the activities were just translating because we happened to speak Arabic and, and that way it helped us empathize a bit more with the, solution, uh, with the uh, situation because we heard stories firsthand from the people who were affected. I will talk about one or two stories. Um, there were many and it's difficult for me to select some of them. But for example, there was a girl, Emel Ali. She's Syrian Kurdish. She's 18 years old. She's with her three siblings, two younger sisters and a younger brother. These four children were alone, traveling, and managed to arrive on an island in Greece where we were able to help them. Now, the heartbreaking thing is the stories you hear. It turns out that her father was kidnapped by ISIS, and after that, nobody knew what happened. And these four children were traveling alone to seek asylum, to seek refuge. Even more saddening is the fact that they had to leave their mother behind because she was disabled. So their mother was staying in Syria alone while these four young children were traveling to seek asylum and refuge. Another story, uh, maybe Muhammad Tani was one of the people I met, great guy. And uh, his story was fascinating. I, I, I helped a woman and her three children um, into a hotel and so on after ages of walking and, and carrying large bags and so on and the stress 
And after I managed to get them into a hotel with my friends, I was to walk back to the shore where we'd help out more. As I was going down, he mentioned to me that he wanted to come to the shore as well. I asked him why. It turns out that he wasn't related to the woman and two children. He just decided to pick up, leave his stuff at the shore, his passport, his ID, his cash, his clothes, everything near the shore, simply so he could help this mother and two children to find refuge or find a hotel or a place to stay in Greece. Now, that's one of the amazing things of being there. You come across some of the most amazing people and sometimes some of the worst disasters bring out the best and worst in people. Another story was of four young Syrian guys, about the age of many people here, university age. These four guys lived in the streets of Turkey for a year. They had nowhere to sleep, to, live, to eat, to do anything. And after the year, they managed to finally find work, practically donkey work, getting paid peanuts, five euros a day, 10 euros a day, heavy lifting and so on. They made just about enough money maybe 1,500 euros, to just come across the border. And their boat sank. They were close to drowning and dying, amongst many others. And they were picked up by the Turkish Coast Guards, beaten on the boat that they were picked up by, and taken back to the shore. And this not only happened once, in fact, it happened twice, and it was the third time that finally they managed to arrive at Greece and we came across them. So those are a couple of the stories you come across, and it's, you know, they're much, much uh, more significant than I'm making them in these short few minutes. But one thing I'd also say is that you need to get away from the politics, the headlines, the language we use. It provides a hesitation for us. We're worried, ISIS, this, uh, right-wing groups, uh, refugees, refugees. Let's not forget these people are humans. The panel have mentioned it before, they are humans. We just happen to be born in a different place at a different time. And one thing we need to remember is that these individuals are doing all they can to get to the shores of Europe to find a better home, to find a home they can live in. So I hope nobody here would, would want to turn their backs on them. Just to mention the worst of humanity that you see, there was one woman also, a nurse, a Greek nurse, who unfortunately refused to um, help a newborn child um, when a woman gave birth in a Greek hospital and uh, refused to put him on a drip and so on and was willing for the child to die. But these places bring out the worst and best and one of the most amazing things was to get to know some of these amazing people. In terms of solutions and perspectives on solutions, I believe now is a defining moment for the British government, as well as British society, to determine what they stand for. Our values are being put to the test, and it's what we do with it now that will determine who we are as a British polity and society. I urge everyone here who has hesitations, just like I did, every single one of you who has a hesitation, pick up and go. There is no way you will regret your decision. I guarantee you that. I'd like to say that in those short five days that finished within minutes in my own mind was the most fulfilling five days I've had in the past year. And I felt I have given more to this earth in those five days than I had the past year. So lastly, I'd just like to say 
that the solution is you here. Let's not point our fingers anywhere else. You here are our solution. And I see 300 possibilities in this room right now. Small or big, you are the ones that will determine what can happen with this conflict, with this situation. Thank you. Our final speaker for the night is uh, Benjamin Ward, who is the Deputy Director of Human Rights Watch Europe and Central Asia Division. He supervises research on the EU region, the Western Balkans and Turkey. He writes regularly about human rights in Europe and before becoming Deputy Director, uh, Ward researched Bosnia, Croatia and Kosovo for Human Rights Watch. Before joining the organization, he worked for the United Nations in Somalia and New York and in Bosnia for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe who was admitted to practice as a barrister in England and Wales in 2003 and holds a bachelor's in government from, from, the, from the London School of Economics and a master's in international affairs from the Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. So could you please give a warm Thanks very much. Thanks uh, for the invitation to come and, and speak this evening on such an important subject. Um, I, it's not great to have to be the last speaker, I have to say, because many, many, many things have already been said. But I will try and, uh, and complement what has already been said and talk about the work that my own organization has been doing in the context of this very difficult situation. Um, I, many of you probably know Human Rights Watch is an international human rights organization. The way that we work is by going to places where people's human rights are, are being abused by interviewing the, the victims of that human rights abuse uh, directly, uh, by telling their stories, uh, publishing their stories in reports, in, in, uh, in, in press documents, through social media, through video, uh, bringing those stories uh, of human rights abuse to the attention of the media and also to the attention of policymakers. Ultimately, our objective is to try to get policymakers to change the approach that they're taking. Um, so all of the work that we do is centered around identifying practical recommendations that we think can help to improve the situation. And our researchers uh, this year have been working very intensively uh, on, on this uh, refugee crisis. Um, as others have said, uh, it's not fundamentally a crisis in the sense that uh, a refugee crisis that exists in the countries neighboring Syria or uh, in the countries that neighbored Afghanistan or in Kenya or in parts of the world which have real refugee crises. But it is a crisis in the sense that the political response to it by European Union governments has been so uh, uh, insufficient uh, that it has created uh, uh, problems, very severe problems particularly localized problems, which I can, I can talk about uh, in, in more detail. We have been working in all along the Western Balkan route. Uh, as you probably know, for the second half of this year, the principal route through which people have been entering uh, Europe is crossing from Turkey across the Aegean into Greece and then traveling up through the Western Balkan countries into uh, the central part of the European Union. And along the way, we have seen extremely serious human rights abuses. Uh, those actually begin 
uh, uh, on the on the on the sea crossing. You know, more than more than 3,500 people have died this year making the crossing. That is the reason why uh, safe and legal routes are such an important aspect of the solution to this crisis. People ought not to have to risk their lives to reach safety in Europe. And we were all incredibly moved by the by the awful, heartbreaking images of the of the toddler, uh, Ilan Kurdi, lying lifeless on a on a on a beach in Turkey uh, earlier this year. One hundred children have died crossing the Aegean since he died. So that problem has not gone away at all. Uh, what happens when people arrive in the Greek islands? Um, I want to take a moment to say that the work of volunteers in the Greek islands and all along the Western Balkans route has been absolutely incredible. Uh, many times our researchers tell me that they go to a, to a place and, and there are only really volunteers doing work there. That's true in Macedonia, in Serbia, in, in Hungary, in Greece, uh, in Croatia, in Slovenia, and elsewhere. So I really would encourage uh, uh, you to, to, to hear the call of other speakers and, uh, and get involved and, and volunteer because it, it is so needed right now. So, so they, 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 they land on the Greek islands. Uh, in many cases, they, they, uh, they're, they're suffering from hypothermia because they've got wet on the journey. And of course, as the weather gets worse now, we're worried that more and more cases of hypothermia are gonna be happening and that people are gonna die of hypothermia. And then as they cross into, uh, into the mainland, um, they, often find that they get trapped on the way. Uh, instead of European governments working together, which they're supposed to do, there is a common European asylum system, uh, European governments are in fact playing a game of beggar thy neighbor, where one country decides to, to, to try to close its borders with barbed wire fences to prevent people from entering and direct the flow somewhere else, and then another country responds by closing its borders in turn and we see the phenomenon of what we've described as cascading border closures. And the consequences of that, in very human terms, are that you can have people stuck for three, four, five, six days at a border crossing in the middle of nowhere with no shelter, no sanitation, no food, no medical uh, uh, treatment. Now, obviously, when, when, when you're talking about the situation when it's, uh, when it's hot, uh, you, you, can, you can have problems. Um, but uh, uh, it, it, you know that's one situation. As we get into the winter, um, then it becomes a different situation, and it, and we're very very concerned, and, and many other uh, uh, agencies are also concerned that unless there is a more effective coordinated response by EU governments along the Western Balkan route, we're going to see people dying, um, and and that we really ought not to have to see people dying in order to <coughs> get the kind of coordinated action that is necessary to, to respond effectively to this crisis. Um, the, so the, the, that is that risk of death uh, uh, along the route as a, as a result of the lack of coordination is one of the big three risks that we see in the coming months if there isn't a more effective coordinated response from EU governments. The second big risk, I think, comes from the, 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 the impact of the crisis and the flows on, on the couple of countries that have really done the right thing, the, the countries that have actually shown real leadership in this crisis, not the United Kingdom, but Germany and Sweden. Those two governments have genuinely been open and welcoming 
to refugees and asylum seekers and have taken many uh, hundreds of thousands in. But those countries are now uh, uh, facing uh, uh, strains on their reception uh, systems and uh, a lot of domestic political disquiet about the fact that other EU governments don't seem to be stepping in and helping them out. So it's absolutely imperative that there is more responsibility sharing across the EU if we want to see the countries that do the right thing continue to do the right thing. The third uh, uh, fear, concern that we have relates to a long-standing uh, uh, direction of, of EU migration and asylum policy, which, which several other speakers have touched on. And that is the idea of, of what's sometimes referred to as externalization or outsourcing. It's the idea of pushing responsibility for asylum seekers and migrants away from EU territory and onto other countries, neighboring countries and countries in regions where people uh, experience displacement. And the big, the big focus right now is on Turkey because of the fact that Turkey is the principal uh, transit route through which most people uh, have reached uh, Europe this year, about 700,000 people. Um, there is a summit on Sunday between EU leaders and, and the Turkish government. Uh, and the Turkish government has, has demanded uh, uh, three, million, three billion euros and, uh, and, and various other political concessions. Um, the fear is that Turkey, which already has more than two million Syrian refugees, which is really struggling to cope, um, we, we, we recently carried out research where we found that more than 400,000 uh, Syrian refugee children are not going to school. I think that gives you a sense of how, uh, of how much of a challenge uh, Turkey is experiencing. Our concern is that if Turkey does make this deal, the Turkish government does make this deal with Europe to try to stem the flow of asylum seekers across the Aegean, what we will see is a worsening humanitarian situation for Syrian and other refugees and asylum seekers in Turkey, and also potentially uh, 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 a worsening of the situation that we have al al already documented, which is Turkey restricting its borders with Syria and possibly with other countries as well to prevent people who are, who are fleeing from, from uh, uh, reaching safety in Turkey. And there's a very serious concern and our fear is that the EU, in exchange for Turkey's help in stopping people from moving on, will turn a blind eye as Turkey prevents people from entering its territory. So that is something that we're going to be uh, uh, looking at very intensively. We have uh, research uh, already in Turkey and we'll have more in the coming months that we'll be pressing EU governments uh, not to, uh, to abdicate their responsibility, to shift it to countries that already are bearing much more responsibility for this crisis than Europe. Um, this is not uh, simply a matter of our values and our empathy, although it is both of those things. It's also a matter of Europe's legal obligations. Uh, Europe has, uh, European governments have obligations under human rights law, under refugee law, and under EU law to provide access to protection and humane treatment for asylum seekers and migrants. And it is absolutely imperative that they live up to those legal responsibilities. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So now we're going to have a Q&A for 30 minutes. And the way it's going to work, we're going to have two people roaming around with microphones. And uh, if you can make your questions short, related to the topic, please. 
and uh, if you could state your name and sort of if you're a student if you're pre uh, representing an organization. So are there any questions? Hi. Perfect. Hello. <laughs> um, just a quick question. Given that 53% of refugees arriving in Europe are Syrian, why are there no Syrians on the panel? Thank you for that important question. Instead of addressing it to the panelists, can I just answer? Is that okay? Is that okay? So what we did for the past two weeks, and we started doing this event for the past two weeks, we attempted to contact as many Syrians as we can. Unfortunately, they weren't available. We contacted three, all three of them weren't available. Um, we had two that came up yesterday, but it was just too late to change the structure. So if you want, if you can speak to us afterwards and then we can explain fully. But that's the answer I could give, unfortunately. Sorry? <laughs> Okay. Is there any other question? The, yeah, so if the microphone could go to the woman in the yellow jumper. Hello. So my question is just about sort of, is there sorry. a centralization? Would it be okay if you could just speak up? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if there's a place where, or sort of a website where it's centralized the efforts to help refugees because Often I talk to sort of friends or whatever and everybody wants to help but it seems to be that there is no platform where you can find um, things that you can be helpful in and you find lots of individual um, efforts to help but never, never a, a central platform where you can um, uh, yeah, sign up or sort of uh, find what you would be able to put your talents to, or? Um. Okay. Um, well, the organization, London to Calais, we meet um, every week at uh, on Tuesday in SOAS. Um, we just yesterday uh, set up a SOAS society for London to Calais. Mona, one of the main organizers of the organization and someone who has really worked so hard, is um, just up there, and you can speak to her. Uh, we organize convoys in terms of um, direct aid, but like I said, the priority is not making the reality there um, even nicer, though we want to make it as, as, as comfortable as possible to an extent. We're also trying to work on ways to try and get people to Britain, try and get people um, applying for asylum in France as well. So there's many things that we're trying to do. Um, there's a Facebook group, London to Calais. Um, yeah, please get involved. But what I mean is not sort of a physical presence of, of that sort of platform where, um, is there a website where the various efforts that are being made, for example, not necessarily to go help physically the refugees, but... Okay, um, well, in, ter in terms of the organization that um, I've been working with, London to Cali, we have a Facebook page, um, you can get involved there. Okay. Okay. And just a quick thing, I know what you mean, because the same thing, we had the same problem, because the the problems spread throughout Europe, it's really hard to have a centralized point. So that's why, as in Mehdi mentioned Facebook, Facebook's an amazing place where you can hear about what people are doing. But it's little organizations, little charity organizations, volunteers on the ground who are making the biggest difference. You can't find one contact person because it's not one organization who's doing this. These camps pop up everywhere and anywhere, and sometimes close just as fast as they pop up. So that's why it's hard to have a centralized location for everything. I if it's okay to answer, I've got some of those answers for you as well. I've just come back from Lesbos, Greece, literally two days ago. 
Um, I was out there for at least eight days and, um, you know, horrific scenes as um, uh, Brother Mehdi just uh, described. Um, the answer to some of those questions is there is uh, a Mercy Worldwide Trust. Uh, they're looking for volunteers at this moment in time for the, anyone who wants to go out to Greece. Uh, there are other humanitarians. There's lots and lots of various, various organizations that are going out there. Uh, Facebook is the page to go to. You know, just go onto social media. You'll find anyone or anything to do with refugees that are actually going out there. Um, well, I came across so many different uh, human relief funds and various other, you know, various other organizations that are out there all doing the same thing. Uh, one thing we must remember is that, you know, we, we can't kind of um, uh, put ourselves just to one organization when we're out there. Humanity kind of is a family that we're all working towards um, to support these people out there. So, you know, you're, you start of working with one organization but you're all out there doing the same thing and it's the same cause and it's the same objective. Um, other than Mercy Worldwide Trust, uh, there's a zenabia.org that's opened up. It's run by three or four various other organizations that are all getting together including Imamia Medics International. They're all going out there by Christmas perhaps or, uh, or as early as from next week onwards. Get in touch with as many people as you can on social media. It will help. Um, and just you know, ask them what you can help with. I went out um, thinking that I was going to do all the medical aid stuff and I was going to be a nurse and helping out, but there's so much to do. There is so much to do out there, even putting a smile on a child's face, food distribution, cleaning up, food supplies, warehouse you know, organizations of containers and things like that. That is still small work, but it's still you know, work that is going to be something that is going to support these people. You know, um, I literally got off the plane on Monday last week and I went out there and pulled out fem females and other people from the boat. I didn't expect to be doing that so as soon as that. But to tell you the truth, you know, the pain that you see from these people's faces when you've just pulled them out of the boat is like you're giving them so much hope. But at some, it breaks you down when you know that, you know, this is just the starting point for them. That is just the starting point. You know, they haven't actually reached, uh, reached their, you know, home. They've fled from somewhere where they're actually hoping that you're going to be their final destination, but you know that they've got to move on. You can't give them that hope. You see there's a lot of pain in the eyes of some of these children thinking that they've just come on from somewhere, they've reached their point, but you, ha you, know, you can't give them that hope. And some of the experiences I have are just incredible and heartbreaking. And he's just got... Oh. Okay. Next question. Can I, can I just, uh, just add to that? I, th I think the questioner was asking about whether there's a platform which kind of collates the information and makes that accessible. Uh, possibly not, because as Hib outlined, the, the, the situation is so fluid. But the UNHCR has that sort of regional response sort of grid system in which to think about uh, who's doing what so work is not replicated. So in a sense, you don't even have to like, go to these places if you've got the skills, if you know how to put a website together and, you could, and you've got the time and the expertise, you could replicate a similar sort of system which would be very useful for, for somebody. So in terms of a practical solution, uh, that's, that's something would, which would help other activists who are, who are kind of doing that. Okay. Our next question. So if you could just put your hand up so he knows who you, yeah. Hi, my name is Mona. I'm from London to Calais, just as cream. Um, it's not so much a question, more of a comment or like something, a point for debate, I would say. Um, 
I, I mean, I feel like we're getting a little bit stuck in, in something where we're like, oh, the poor refugees, we, we feel sorry for them, and, and, and oh, you're so good because you're volunteering, you're helping them, and it's all well and good that you feel, can feel nice about yourself. But I have to say I'm sick and tired of having to be a nice person and essentially having to take over the British government's job because that's what we're doing when we're going to Calais. So I think our brothers and sisters in Calais shouldn't be living at our mercy. They don't need to be grateful to us for what we're doing. That's not necessary. It should be obvious, it should be self-evident that they have a right to come in. So rather than focusing, I mean, obviously we need to, while it's going on, we need to try and help people in the des desperate situation, but rather than just focusing on making the situation a little bit more bearable, which it isn't, like it's constantly undermined by the British state, I think we need to turn around and we need to look at the British government, really. I mean, there, there was a refugee camp in Calais. It was a Red Cross refugee camp in the early 2000s, and under pressure of the British and French government, it was closed down. What we're seeing now is another effort of camps being closed down. What's happening simultaneously is us volunteers going to Calais being called terrorists. And being yesterday, when I, was, when I came back from a work trip, I was stopped at the border by anti-terror police, and I was asked about my attitude towards the British government. And I'm a white person. So my husband was a Muslim. Imagine the treatment he's getting. He's not allowed to Calais back in anymore. That's the situation. So we are up against, against the French and the British state, who are basically making it impossible for us to actually provide a real solution. And that's really the point of debate that I want to raise, is how can we hold the British government accountable, which is now about to start another deadly war in Syria. And there's an important demonstration tomorrow on that, which I would like to all encourage you to come along. But how can we hold the British government accountable and, and really put political pressure on them to, to face their responsibilities? Okay. Um. Can I, can I please stress one thing? Can you please ask a question? If you have a comment afterwards, but please just ask a question, keep it short. And upon this, please, 30 seconds. So uh, the woman here. Okay. Hi, I have a little bit of a practical question for those of you who work in camps. Given that camps are quite crowded, like as you said, Calais, there are 6,000 people. When there are these aid convoys going there, how do you keep it fair? How do you make sure that you don't augment in intercamp uh, fights? Or how do you make aid more sustainable? Well, in terms of um, London to Cali, that's a continuous um, debate and discussion which is happening in all of the meetings and um, something that everybody has uh, you know, different views on and different ways of doing it. But trying you know do you do that well um for instance with the last convoy that was done um as mona said uh, we were stopped on the border and one of our organizers was um who had been previously stopped under anti-terror anti um laws uh was uh, deported uh from france when we <coughs> arrived so we had great difficulty with the last convoy in terms of uh in terms of finishing it um, and completing it um, in the best way possible. However, we did have two people on the ground um, in the camp for um, about seven days before we arrived who were gathering information about um, the best ways to do it, the best ways to um, distribute the, uh, uh, the stuff that we brought. At the end of the day, 
the main focus for me, I agree that these things are important in terms of how you distribute it, how you, uh, you know, do things fairly. But the main thing is that we don't want the camp to exist completely. We don't want it to exist. We want people to be safe. We want people to be um, in, uh, fully taken in into societies and able to work and live. That's what we want. So that's, you know, from my role within what I've been doing, that's where I've been focused on. But, you know, it's a continuous, it's a continuous struggle, really. It's a continuous struggle. Thank you. Yeah, I was just going to respond to that quickly as well. No doubt, unfortunately, you will find instances of territorial politics. People want things to be done in certain ways, etc., etc. Really, just remember why you're there. That is the most important thing. And check yourself on that. No doubt, there will always be a bit of politics here and there. But just remember what you're there for, and at the end of the day, don't look at the negatives, because these are small things. The fact that you're going to be there, you're going to be doing things, you will have an effect and an impact. And I'd just like to add to the point before, we were talking about you know, how to get involved and so on, this and that. There are many organizations, feel free to talk to me afterwards, um, but there is no central coordination, and this is the nature of humanitarian you know, relief, disasters and so on. Emergencies are like this, and this is only a natural thing that would happen. So. Um, just get involved to whatever extent you can, and there, there will be things. If you look for it, there will be opportunities available. Yeah. Okay. The next question. Uh, hi there. Um, my name is Ahmed. Um, I study international relations at Aston University, and I am a UN Minorities Human Rights Delegate for the Khoi Foundation. Uh, firstly, I'd just like to say thank you so much to SARS Absoc and to the MENA Society for organizing this event. I think it's really brought to light uh, plenty of issues which we have um, a lot to think about in various capacities. Uh, my question is directed uh, predominantly towards uh, Brother Abdi, but also towards uh, Mehdi, Karim, Hiba, and anyone else who feels appropriate to answer. Um, from a student kind of uh, capacity, what can we do? I mean, there's, there's plenty of societies that are collaborating on this event, but also plenty of delegates and presidents here in this room. What can we do to uh, pressure student establishments or our SUs, what, what sort of um, work can we do from our base here to, to make a difference um, to refugees in Europe? Thank you. Um, so I suppose you're, you're dealing with uh, um, roughly three, three different sort of groups, right? So one is uh, asylum seekers and refugees who are destitute living in the United Kingdom already who uh, in their cases, there's a lot of things you can do in terms of allowing them to use the physical space of the university, putting, passing a motion at your student union and asking them to make your student union give equal status to asylum seekers, refugees, and students in the physical space. Some student, I, mean, I know my student union at Sheffield's done that already. So asylum seekers and refugees who are in the city who, are, who don't know where to go can go to the student union. Um, uh, that was me. But second... Um, when it comes to uh, uh, Calais, um, it's about volunteering with the organizations, uh, like the organizations you've been hearing about, who actually have the expertise. It's the same with the third group, which is the bigger refugee crisis uh, it, it, with, with Syrian refugees and other refugees. And I think with them, I think it's a lot more about going to the organizations, volunteering with those organizations that already have the expertise uh, as to what to do, as opposed to trying to produce a completely student-made sort of thing. Um, from your universities, I think you have to be very clear about getting them to do the things they already do. So they hire academics all the time. So you have to be putting pressure on them to say, well, wait a minute, there's a history of taking in academics who are at risk. Our university should be taking in X number of academics at risk. Um, and the same with scholarships. Scholarships for students, right? 
And there's, there's also uh, the fact that universities have people who speak a variety of languages. So actually there's all sorts of uh, 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 people who speak different languages who you should be trying to draw in those volunteers and then try to move them onto the organizations that need those volunteers. So I think that's probably what I'd answer. In terms of Cali, what I think would be great is they've set up a library there. It doesn't have many books. Um, SOAS is an institution which has a huge amount of books in the library. We could organize something around that, possibly, you know, uh, directing books there. Also, um, Mehdi had a great idea. He's not just a, a handsome and persuasive fellow. He's also, um, he also is full of amazing ideas. One of his ideas was that um, we set up uh, some form of uh, English teaching whereby we kind of came up with this together and we want to talk to um, people at SOAS about it, but a direct uh, internet link or way that we can directly communicate with people in the, um, in the camp specifically and that SOAS students can, whenever they want, just come on, log on and teach English that way um, because I think people would benefit um, from, from that. So stuff like that. Your students think, read, think up new ideas, new ways of thinking about this issue. And this is what universities are for. So, you know, uh, yeah. Okay, um, Jamil, if you could go to the gentleman down, is that Burgundy Thai? Hello? Yeah. Okay, nice one. My name is Rabat. Uh, I had a question to Benjamin, who's from Human Rights Watch. I wanted to know what kind of steps that civil society in general, NGOs included, are taking to repeal or amend the Dublin Three regulation, because that seems to be the main problem with the EU receiving refugees. Uh, countries within Central Europe don't feel an obligation take refugees because of this regulation, when in fact under the Refugee Convention there's no such thing as first place, you have to stay there forever. So. Yeah, D Dublin, Dublin is certainly, certainly a problem, it's something that we have uh, done a lot of work on, uh, advocacy in Brussels with, with different governments. I mean, th Dublin at the moment is, is not... Uh, not the only problem uh, uh, and um, in to some degree the, 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 the current crisis the, the people who've arrived this year are not being dealt with entirely under the Dublin system because Greece is not being pe people theoretically everyone who arrives in Greece should stay in Greece under the Dublin system and actually there's a there's a plan to relocate 160,000 people from Greece and also from Italy to other EU countries um, and that, I think, has the potential to become something more permanent that would actually ameliorate a lot of the kind of worst effects of Dublin if it, if it, if it actually did move towards a more permanent system. Because um, the problem with Dublin is it, it places an undue burden on the countries at the external borders, um, obviously, and, uh, um, and that's one of the reasons why uh, the situation for asylum seekers and migrants in Greece has been so bad for, for, for many years because Greece has simply not, has been expected essentially to bear responsibility for all of Europe's refugees when it doesn't have the ability to do so. So Dublin, work on Dublin definitely continues. We, we published a, a, an advocacy document last week that, that calls for a reform of Dublin and we'll certainly continue to do that. Obviously the problem with the Dublin system, or why, sorry, the reason why the Dublin system is so difficult to reform is because the status quo actually suits a lot of EU countries because they don't actually receive any 
asylum seekers as a consequence. And that's why the, the, the relocation plan is a really important first step and something we've been focusing on. Could, could, we just, could we just give a round of applause to Josephine because she needs to go, but just... Well. Okay, Benjamin just mentioned there that it's 160,000 people that are going to be relocated. The actual number that's actually been relocated through the scheme is about 118. It's 159 now. 159. It's it'll, gone up. It'll take a, it'll take 180 years to reach the 160,000 if they do it. This it it's taken a very long time. The other thing about the Dublin Convention as well, it's often framed around safety. And if we start thinking about human security instead of safety, that probably speaks to the concerns of the refugees and migrants themselves. Okay. Um, we're just going to have one more question. And please don't go, because we just have two more announcements to make. But just one more question from the gentleman there. Okay. Good evening. My name is Nakhil Rizvi, and I'm a master's student at UCL. I just have two very short questions, hopefully 10 seconds each. The first one is, I think, one of the recurring themes of this talk was holding governments to account. And I wanted to know how we, as students or common people, can do that. And the second was, for some of these refugees that actually do come into some of these countries, they might actually be victimized again because of racism or Islamophobia or whatever. And how can we make sure that these refugees are not victimized again and can actually lead a secure and safe life here? Thank you. Well, I mean, the, the, the issue of xenophobic violence uh, is, is, a really, is a really serious one. Um, it's something we've, we've looked at a lot uh, in Greece and, and also in Italy and tried to, to push for more uh, prosecutions of people for racist violence. And actually in Greece, you've see, there has been some progress there. But I mean, the key thing I think is, is, is pressing, there is this perception I think that, um, you know, that, that, that public opinion is kind of a, is hostile to, to immigration, hostile to, to asylum seekers and, uh, and, and migrants. And, and you know, I think what we can all do as, you know, as citizens of our country is to do everything we can to make sure that policymakers, our elected representatives, our, M our local MPs and others, understand that that's actually not everyone's view, you know, uh, that, that, that we don't all share that perspective. And, and also that we, we demand that the way in which the, the public discourse on this issue takes place is actually respectful, doesn't you know, engage in, in kind of xenophobic, uh, uh, stigmatizing language, actually recognizes people as being human beings, as others have said, even if you know, we, we, we may disagree on what the, what the policy solutions are, we ought to be able to at least agree on, on that. Very, very quickly on the, on, uh, on, on, the, on the last bit of that point. I think you're completely right. I think there, is, uh, that there are fundamental problems to do with Islamophobia. And I think we need to challenge things like prevent, we need to challenge things like the cancerism narrative, which is, a, you know, which is calling people who are volunteering in Calais terrorists while simultaneously and, and, and putting pressure on people who are trying to articulate opinions in universities and at the same time feeding the Islamophobia in wider society. And if we're essentially, uh, if essentially people are coming to this country from a place of harassment and so on and so forth and, and, and going through all these difficulties to make it to the United Kingdom only to come to a United Kingdom that is increasingly prejudiced, right? We have a duty to also join organizations and campaign against that as well. So the struggle against Islamophobia goes with the struggle of solidarity with the, uh, refugees and migrants. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to end the Q&A session here. Unfortunately, I apologize, you know.
you cannot, would you mind asking us after the event, just outside, if that's okay? Just in the foyer there. And just before I call Mehdi back on stage, I just have two small quick announcements. The first one is, they came up earlier, but if you, again, if you could sign up to the SOAS Solidarity Refugees in the Space People Society and support their cause to, to sort of fund more, more scholarships for refugees at SOAS. And the second is from the Student for Serious Society uh, organization. So I'm just gonna read off the sheet of paper and then encourage you to get involved. So the Students for Syria is a student organization set up at King's College London in 2011, which seeks to empower students to become proactive members of society and help the Syrian people suffering from the conflict. This is through three areas of work, advocacy, awareness, and fundraising, and they are currently working on a campaign to pressurize universities across the UK to create a mixture of undergraduate and postgraduate scholarships, as well as bursary, bursaries to Syrians from refugee backgrounds. So the campaign is called Scholarship for Refugees. The hashtag is Syrian Students Welcome and will be launched by our collaborators FOSIS on the 4th of December. We aim to engage individuals and societies of other backgrounds who, also, who have also been moved by the crisis to come together and form an action groups. These groups will work within their universities to motion, lobby and engage with student bodies and the institution itself to secure scholarships, accommodation and bursaries to as many Syrian refugees as possible. Forces and Students for Syria will support, coordinate and train action groups, providing them with all materials and tools they need to start up an effective campaign. We believe students can encourage universities to lobby their SUs and become part of a National Refugees Welcome campaign through creating scholarships. Students can leave a mark in a resettlement of Syrian refugees into the UK. So what can you do to get involved? You can create a lot of noise from the 4th of December. The student body is one of the most powerful and effective organizing forces in the UK with campaigns that have influenced both local and national governments that have been brought change and action to the national debate. So lobby your university and join the campaign. You can volunteer with us. We're going to have a sign-up sheet outside. And please register your interest via the email students, um, studentsforsyria at gmail.com and keep an eye out for FOSIS and S4S on social media and on the 4th of December. So thank you so much for coming. I'm just going to call back Mehdi Baraka, but once again, it was a pleasure. Just to add on to that, um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. We've, we've already, I think we've spoken enough and it's getting quite late. But I just wanted to say simply and actually ask you a rhetorical question of what's next. We've sat here for over two hours, we've discussed, we've had senior academics, organizations and volunteers all tell you of their experiences. You've sat and answered, asked questions and heard the answers, but what is next? And this is a type of event where we don't want it to be where we just sit down together for two hours and we leave thinking we've done our bit. This is an event that's going to change how societies are run at university. It's time to act on all the things that were said here today. And that's why I urge you all to join us in creating a new organization called the Refugee Project, which is specific to SOAS, and to lead the way and become an example to all other societies and student unions in, by pressuring our management and pressuring the union into taking action. We've got the... Um, Kareem already stole the words from my mouth. We, we are planning on, on, on many things, but one of them is creating this online portal where students can log in and translate and teach refugees English because that is an integral part of their application in order to seek asylum. They have to learn English and that is something that we can help them with and something that we feel is our duty in doing so. So I urge you all to get involved. 
If you have any questions or would like to be part of this organization, part of the committee, there is nothing stopping you. It is open to all. So please do speak to me or Ali outside. And I would like to thank you all for coming. And also before you leave, there is a photo exhibition put on outside for you, as an opportunity for you to mingle and talk with each other and share some experiences and also to look at some fantastic pictures that have been taken from, by a photojournalist who has trailed the whole trek the refugees have made from Baghdad to Calais. He has stopped off at every camp, at every country, taking pictures and highlighting the stories there. So please do check it out and check out his blog, explore, explorethealternative.wordpress.org. And thank you all for coming and we hope to see you again. This was a podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Thank you for listening.